Well, welcome again. For those who don't know me, my name is John Norris. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's good to see you guys. It's good to worship with you guys. We're in the book of 1 Timothy. We started it last week. If you have a Bible, it would help if you open it up, if you pull it up so that you can see the text for yourself. We're in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. And before we begin, let's ask the Lord for help. Father, we have no other hope, no other strength but Jesus. Jesus, you tell us that you're not going to leave us alone. You send the Spirit, a counselor, a comforter. And would you now, Jesus, be with us through the Holy Spirit, please? I pray that you would help us. Would you help me to preach in a way that's pleasing to you? And would you work in our hearts so that we see what you have to say and we trust it? We need your help. And so we pray that you'd give it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is God's word. Okay, last week we said, when we were setting up this book, that there were teachers, false teachers, in Ephesus. That's the city here. And Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to correct the false teachers and also to correct the people who were being misled by them. A few times in this book, we get little snapshots, like really quick pictures of what the false teaching might have been, what it might have been like. And this text is one of them. So it's actually going to be the first section that we go over. We're going to talk about false teaching. That's section one. There's false teaching in Ephesus. And then we'll look at true teaching. That's section two. Because Paul is going to contrast true teaching with false teaching. And really, we're going to see as we get there that he's mostly concerned with what true teaching does. Not just what it is, but what it does. We'll see that when we get there. So false teaching, true teaching. When we get to the second section, there are a couple questions we'll ask and see how the text answers them. Let's start with false teaching. In Ephesus, we can see right here, if you look at your passage, that there were teachers who were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. That's verse 4. So they considered themselves to be teachers of the Jewish law as well. You can see that in verses 6 and 7. Paul says it's vain discussion because they don't know what they're talking about. And next week... We're going to focus on the law and what it's for. Paul's going to talk about that in the next passage. These men didn't get it. They didn't get what the law was about. Instead, 
It appears that these teachers were taking small details from the Old Testament and genealogies. Those are lists of people's names in the Old Testament. They were taking little details and genealogies, and they were trying to make something new, big, and special out of it. They were trying to make something important out of something that's not really there in the text. Now, we know some of the Jewish myths that were circulating in the first century. Some of them were silly. You can read about them. I read one this week about Moses being born circumcised already. I mean, that's a Jewish myth. Like, he's so holy, he was circumcised before he was born. Now, that's silly. It's not that important, but it's significant because it's not in the Bible, and yet people really believed it and thought that it mattered. It's not in the Bible. It's a myth, and Paul is concerned about stuff like that. It might seem silly, but that kind of stuff matters to Paul. He mentions genealogies as well. So apparently people were trying to take lists of family names in the Old Testament and attach spiritual power and significance to certain family lines. I once preached somewhere else. I wasn't here. I think I mentioned demons in the message, and someone sent me a message after the service describing to me how the Nephilim, who are in the Old Testament, They're descendants of demons, and they're still alive today. Their family lines are still alive, and they're actually in high places in government and places of authority, and they're behind all the social and economic problems in the world. People believe things like that. Those are myths based on the Bible, which almost makes them feel spiritual. They feel spiritual. They feel legitimate because they mention the Bible. They just aren't true. But in addition to not being true, Paul has another problem with this kind of religious teaching. Religious teachings like this, myths and genealogies like the ones I just mentioned, they're distractions from what really matters. Do you see that here? Paul says, this is verse 4, his problem with these teachings is that they promote speculations They promote speculations. That's the problem with them. Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. People like to get caught up with issues that aren't true. People like to get caught up in things like the world is being controlled by the Illuminati who are actually descendants of the Nephilim in the Bible and they're controlling everything that's wrong with the world. The appeal is that it feels important and spiritual, but it's not. People like to speculate. They like to see conspiracies. People like to read the Bible and see things new and special that only a few other people see. And the big problem with that is that it keeps their eyes off of what actually matters, what actually honors God. It keeps them, Paul says, from the stewardship of faith. You see that? Verse 4. These kinds of things, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. A stewardship is when you are taking care of something that's not yours. So a a steward in a kingdom 
He's a man who's not the king, but he's taking care of the kingdom while the king is gone. And Paul is saying, we have been given a stewardship by God. God has entrusted to us the good news of what Jesus has done. And he wants us to do something with it. And he wants us to live our lives in a way that's worthy of his son. That's our stewardship. But speculations, getting obsessed with the things that the apostles and Jesus were not obsessed with, is a distraction. And they keep you from being a faithful steward with what God really does want you to care about. And church history shows that the church is always in danger of becoming obsessed with things that are outside of the Bible's concern. Think about how people have created mythologies around saints, just normal men and women, but they've called them saints and now they're praying to them. People have become obsessed with finding the cup that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. They call it the Holy Grail. Now that kind of stuff looks religious. It looks Christian, but it's actually a distraction from Christ and from the heart of Christianity. That's the danger. Here's some examples from our context. Here in our line, I've seen a lot of concern from Christians about demons and curses. Sermons are preached about how to deal with demons, how to speak to them with authority, how to get them out of the car you just bought, or how to get the demons out of your finances. Same thing with curses. How do you get a curse off of you? What strategy can cover you from curses from people who want to harm you? And in it all, the danger is that everything central to the message and stewardship of Christianity is missed. So for example... Demons care about you sinning. That gets missed. In our concern to get demons out of our stuff, we lose sight of the fact that the New Testament cares very, very, very little with teaching you how to get demons out of your house and cares very, very, very much with you resisting sin by faith. Because demons care about you sinning. We get so focused on something the Bible says so little about, and we miss what's central. In our talk of curses, we have mythologies of how curses work, how we can avoid them. It keeps our eyes off the fact that the Bible says almost nothing about curses, except that we shouldn't worry about them. Proverbs 26, 2. What the Bible does tell us is that Jesus doesn't want us to fear any spiritual evil so long as he's our Savior and trust because he's disarmed them all on the cross. Some other things that create speculation and distraction. Speaking your destiny into existence. There are whole theologies about this, how you can speak your future into reality big teachings and theologies. Paul would call that a myth. Where I come from, I don't know if it's this way where you come from, but there are whole teachings about how the end of the world is going to play out. Now, we should care about the end of the world. The Bible talks about it. But I, I mean, I recall specifically watching one guy talk about, this was a while ago, 
the fact that Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist. He is. That's what this guy's whole ministry is about. That's speculation, and it distracts from what the Bible is really about. So be careful. That's the warning here. I don't know what what speculations you might be tempted towards, but be careful. Just because someone uses Bible words doesn't mean they understand the Bible's meaning. We don't know exactly what the false teaching in Ephesus was. What we do know is that instead of focusing on the good news, Jesus crucified and risen for sinners, saving as a free gift those who trust him. Instead of focusing on the new life that Christ has called them, the Ephesians, to live by faith, these teachings focused on other things, more exciting things, maybe. The teachers in Ephesus used Bible words. That's what we should notice. They used Bible words, Bible characters, Bible genealogies, the Bible's law, but they missed the meaning of the Bible and became a distraction to what it's actually about. That's their danger. It was a danger in Ephesus. It's a danger in Alain and wherever else we might live. So let's talk about the true teaching. First, we should notice that true Christian teaching doesn't change. There aren't additions to it. The center of Christian teaching doesn't move. Look look at what Paul says in verse 3. As I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Tell these people not to teach anything different. Different from what? Different from what Paul taught them from the beginning. This might seem small, but when Paul says, tell them not to teach anything different, it means that there was truth that Paul handed down, and he's saying, that's the standard. Anything different from what I've already told you, you're supposed to reject. Jude 3 says something similar. In it, Jude says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Just saying, we have the message of Christianity. We have it. It's been handed down once for all. Paul is saying, Timothy, you know what's been handed down. So look out for anything different. For us, it's here in the Bible. Anything different will lead to speculation You shouldn't tolerate, we've talked about this before, but you shouldn't tolerate being taught by someone who wants to teach you new things. You have instruction here. You should be taught it. True teaching teaches the Bible. And it makes sure that at the center of our teaching is not just Bible words, but is Jesus and His grace to forgive us from our sins, transform us from our sins, and to bring us to enjoy Him and His Father forever. That's the true teaching that has been once for all delivered to the saints. But Paul's main focus here isn't actually on what the biblical instruction is. It's on what it does. So we're going to ask two questions that Paul, he answers these questions. That's why I'm asking them. We're going to ask two questions and see how Paul answers. What is the aim of true teaching? What's the aim? 
The goal is another, another word for aim. What's the aim of true teaching? And how does true teaching get us to that aim? Those are the two questions we're going to answer. What is the aim of true teaching? Verse 5. The aim of our charge, of our instruction, is love. Genuine Christianity aims to create genuinely loving people. Paul is here referring to our love for other people, not our love for God. Our love for God is primary. It's first. You can't love other people without it. You can't please God without it. You're not a Christian if you don't love God. But the New Testament again and again emphasizes that we need to love other people as we follow Jesus. Listen to this. This is John, I mean Jesus, in John 15, verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment. Singular. (laughs) This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Paul in Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 1 John 3, 11, This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. There are lots more of texts like that. The aim, the goal, when, when this teaching is put into you, what other people should see pop out the other side is love. Jesus wants you to know the truth so that you can love other people really well. If you're an athlete, if you're a runner, let's say you're an Olympic runner, you will have a coach, and he or she will teach you. They'll train you. But there's an aim. They're not just talking to you for fun. There's a purpose. There's an aim. There's a goal. The coach is teaching you how to get to the finish line on the track really fast. That's the aim. That's the goal. There's a coach and there's a goal. The coach is trying to get you to the goal. God's word is like a coach. The goal is love. Good coaching won't send you running into the stands or into the middle of the field. It will send you towards the finish line fast. And Bible teaching, when it's good and when it's received in the way it ought to, should lead to love. That's what this is saying. The aim is love. You won't get to that goal, love, without treasuring this book and listening to it. I hope you see that. I mean, we, we often fill our definition of what love is from movies or stories that we hear or feelings that we feel. But This text is saying that it is Christian teaching, true teaching, that really creates love for other people. The aim is love. So how does true teaching get us to that aim? How does it get us there? Look at at what Paul says, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues. That means it comes from. So the aim of our charge is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So think about running a race again. A coach doesn't help you get to the finish line by carrying you to the finish and dropping you off. That's not how a coach gets you there. He trains you so that your legs get stronger, your lungs get stronger, your running technique gets better. That's how the coach gets you to the finish line. 
God's Word doesn't automatically drop us off at the goal of loving other people. No, what it does is as we're trained and as we're taught by it, it makes our hearts pure. You see that? It gives us good consciences and makes our faith sincere. And those things, like strong legs and strong lungs, lungs, move us towards the goal of love. That's how it works. What this verse is saying is that true teaching aims at making us loving by purifying our hearts, giving us good consciences, and giving us a sincere faith. And those things, when those things are in your life, they bring about love. So let's talk about those three things, and let's just talk really quickly about how they bring about love. How does a pure heart... How does a good conscience, how does sincere faith bring forth love? And what does teaching have to do with that? Let's start with a pure heart. A pure heart is not dirty by loving sin more than it loves God. It's pure because it's not dirtied by by sin. Now, in the Bible, a pure heart is not a perfect one. (laughs) There are no perfect hearts but Jesus's. But a pure heart, according to the Bible, doesn't treasure sin. An impure heart, a heart that's not pure, loves sin. And a heart like that cannot love other people. Here's why. Sin, by its very nature, can only use people and despise people. Sin is, at its core, selfishness, putting yourself at the center of the universe. So it only uses people or despises people. A heart like that cannot love. Love has to come from a pure heart because when you're interacting with someone, you will do one of three things. You will pursue what is best for that person from a pure heart in love. Or you will try to use that person to get you something you want or you'll despise that person because they can't give you what you want. Those are the only options. Think think about these scenarios, how this really plays out. Can a man who is given over to the sin of lust, he is regularly feeding his heart and his mind lust for women, can he really love a woman who might be in trouble and needs his help? No. Because in his interactions with her, he will be using her mentally. You cannot use someone and love them at the same time. Can a vain woman, someone who's desperate to be attractive and to be admired, that's what vain means, vanity, I'm desperate for people to think I'm attractive and to admire me. Can a vain woman really be loving to a coworker that she's having a conversation with? No. Her focus can't be on caring for them, but only on getting the other person's attention to make her feel better. She can't love. Now those cross, by the way, it's not just lust for men and vanity for women. How about a greedy man? Can a greedy man love someone who has more money, more power, more status than him? No. He will either be jealous 
Or he'll be trying to use that person to get more money, more power, more status, a better job. Can a greedy person love someone who has less than him? No. He won't be able to give freely in love because he's greedy to keep what he has. I hope we're seeing ourselves here, not just other people. We talk with uh, <laughs> our, our kids about being dragons with your toys. Kids, you might relate to this. You go to someone else's, another kid's house, and like, you're, you're trying to play with stuff, and they're getting all their toys together in a pile and just kind of laying on top of them. That's what dragons do. They collect gold. They don't spend it on anything. They just lay on top of it. That's what greedy people do. They can't love. They can't give in love to other people. Love can only come from a pure heart that does not treasure sin. Our hearts are made pure when we first trust in Christ. Really, he cleanses us of all our filth. I hope you believe that. As bad as you might feel about your sin, Jesus can cleanse every last impurity. And he gives us new desires for the things that he loves. That's called the new birth. And then, more and more, as we are taught this word, as we listen to it, our hearts are made more and more like his. That's the connection. True teaching purifies hearts, and that frees us to love others. A good conscience. How does a good conscience bring forth love? Love issues, see that, from a good conscience. Your conscience is the part of you that judges you. That's what your conscience is. If you do something wrong, let's say you steal something, no one notices. You feel guilty. What is that? That's your conscience. It's the part of you that God has given to you that judges you. A good conscience is when that part of you that judges you tells you good things are good and bad things are bad. That's what a good conscience is. That comes when the Holy Spirit changes you. You're changed as you listen to this word. If you think that bad things are good and good things are bad, you won't be able to love anyone. You'll be doing bad to them and you won't care about doing good to them. Paul is saying, listen to what this word has to say. Listen to it. Have your conscience shaped by the Holy Spirit and His Word. If you ignore this Word and you ignore your conscience, it will go bad. It will. It doesn't matter what your past is. If you stop right now listening to this Word and you ignore your conscience, it'll go bad. You won't know the difference between right and wrong anymore. And worst of all, you won't care. Someone like that can't love. True teaching gives a good conscience which helps you love people for their good. A sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love from a sincere faith. How does faith bring about love? Having a sincere faith means you really do trust God. You really do. You trust Him. You know that He loves you. He's shown it infinitely in Jesus. You know that about Him. And you trust it in your day-to-day -day life. You know everything he does is good. He bought it for you with his priceless son. You know everything he says is good. You trust it. You don't just affirm it. Sure, 
You trust it. Only someone like that is truly free to love other people. Because loving people means you will have to give. You're going to have to give if you love people. Loving people is costly. You'll be giving up your time, your emotions, your energy, your money, your safety, your health. The only kind of people who can walk into hardships like that are people who trust God, who trust that He will be right there to give them what they need as they take those steps to love. This is why theology matters. Not so you can make charts about the end times. This is why true teaching matters. If you really know God as He reveals Himself in His Word, it frees you to take risks in love. It frees you to give up your own comfort in love. It frees you to experience loss for others in love because you know God. You know the character of God, who He is. He's going to take care of you as you give of yourself. He will reward you as you give of yourself. You trust that and it frees you to love and you know that as you give of yourself, you are becoming more like Him fellowshipping with him, the happiest and holiest one there is. Sincere faith, trusting that God leads to love. True teaching matters. God wants us to be radical lovers of others. He intends to make us radical lovers of other people. False teaching distracts from God as he reveals himself in this book. It distracts us from the things he wants of us. So let's keep our eyes on the truth. Let's measure what's true by this word. And let's let it work. As we talk to each other, we speak the truth to each other. As you hear it preached, as you read the Bible by yourself at morning or at night, let's let it work on us. Purifying our hearts, our consciences, and our faith so that we love. That's the goal. Let's pray. Oh God, we want to be loving people. We do not want to be left to ourselves, to live for ourselves, but we want to live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So please, Lord, would you Help us to trust the truth. Would you purify our hearts? Would you give us a good conscience so that we give ourselves away in love? Keep us from being distracted by things that keep our eyes off of you and your son and what you'd have for us. We love you. Continue to work on us now, O oh Lord, and be pleased as we sing. Help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.